Hello and welcome to the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris. I will be your host for this double episode. How's everybody going? Uh, it's it's it, it's been a fortnight. Uh, we are still um, deep into the Rebel Samurai box set. But uh, before we get into that, I want to chat about a couple of films uh, outside of the Criterion Collection that I've seen recently. Uh, so I'm going to kick back. I'm sitting here with a coffee in my, uh, in my Holy Testicle Tuesday mug that Lee made me. And I am uh, going to chat about what's happening in the cinema. Um, since I last spoke with you all, I went and saw uh, Don't Worry Darling, uh, the Olivia Wilde film. Um... Look, so a lot has obviously been said about this movie, um, both, you know, ridiculously so, the scrutiny under which it's been kind of examined in the public sphere and online is pretty fucking ridiculous. Um, it's... The rebuttals on both sides for and against this film, it's kind of just a lot of hot air um, because, to me, ultimately, it's all surrounding a film that... Again, my own personal take, I just did not find that interesting. Um, that's what makes it kind of so astonishing, all this kind of debate and kerfuffle around it all. Um, you know, everyone's behavior aside, what I like, whatever with all of that. As an actual film itself, it was really kind of disappointing. Um, I loved uh, Olivia Wilde's first film, Booksmart. I thought that was a fucking fantastic teen comedy drama. I, I loved every minute of that. It made my um, top 20 of the year. It was in my like end of year video. So I, I went into this one kind of with some high, you know, not high expectations, but like will, wanting this to be great. Um, the cast is fantastic. F who doesn't love Florence Pugh? Um, Chris Pine's amazing. Um, but it just seemed kind of hollow and vapid and kind of really baseline, if that makes sense. I, it was one, unfortunately, I picked the twist three minutes into the film. And then as the film kind of uh, developed and went on, it, I was correct with the twist, but it was also a lot kind of dumber or more on the nose in terms of its attempt at a modern skewering of satire, I guess, or like, you know, a, a takedown of a certain... I'm trying to be as vague as I can for spoilers here. Um, but yeah, that was one. It was just severely disappointing. Um, I really wanted it to be great, but it was one where even in the cinema, I'm there sort of checking my phone and kind of not really engaging with it. Um, another one very similar to that is David O. Russell's uh, new film, Amsterdam, which I also went and saw. Um, David O. Russell's a weird fucking dude. Uh, we can all agree on that. Um, the way he treats his actors is pretty fucking terrible. Has been for a very long time. Um, that's why I find it so funny when, you know, whenever he has a new film, it's that, you know, the discourse is up again about him. And it's just like, yeah, where have you been for the last 20 plus years? Um, but all of that aside, I love, love, love the first half of David O. Russell's career. I mean, even going back to, like, Spanking the Monkey, um which, God, I haven't seen that in, like, 20 years. Maybe I need to give that a revisit. But um, Flirting with Disaster, Three Kings, I Heart Huckabees, I, I adore all three of those films. Um, the Fighter's really solid as well. Silver Linings Playbook I enjoy. Um, but from then onwards, he kind of took a nosedive for me. I really couldn't get into American Hustle, and Joy is a truly baffling film to me. 
Um, Amsterdam is one where, again, I, you know, it's a filmmaker whose work I've enjoyed in the past. So I went in really wanting to enjoy and engage with this one. Plus, you look at that cast list. It's fucking insane. Um, but, like, I, I think, like, halfway through the film, I, I sent a text to um, Toby, like, a previous guest on this show and longtime friend, and just simply said, Michael Shannon and Mike Myers have showed up in this film as a double act. How is this not engaging? And that's pretty much it. It, it is just such a meandering, almost kind of oddly tone-deaf film uh the way that uh that russell kind of it's unsure i guess what it wants to be i mean if it had just stuck to its guns and been a kind of madcap murder mystery caper with these interesting characters who you know a a black lawyer and a disabled and a you know drunk drug addict doctor who were friends from world war one like that would have been really engaging keep that kind of almost agate like you know slapsticky Agatha Christie style up, but then it's interjected with moments of such self-seriousness that it 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 kind of gives you a nosebleed, the way that it kind of veers and shifts up and down and left and right, that when when we do then dip back into the comedy elements of it, you it's so baffling and shocking that you're just like, what wait, what 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 movie are we in? I, I can't deal with this right now. Um, plus the story itself, I mean, it's two and a half hours long, um, again, I want to say there are parts in it that I really enjoyed, and I was, again, rooting for this film, I was, like, all of these films, Don't Worry Darling, Amsterdam, I went into being like, I re- whenever I hear a film has a really bad review, I always watch it being like, I really want to be that one weirdo on Letterboxd who was like, four stars, fucking loved it um but just couldn't with amsterdam as well as don't worry darling my, my big takeaway from amsterdam is given the kind of meandering plot and you know where where it ends up going and that tonal shifts and things and multiple voiceover narrators as well it oh god on that note actually that's that was what bugged me the most is there's constant narration throughout the film but it's expository to the point of nausea if that makes sense where it's it's actually like a scene will happen and then we'll have christian bale jump in with a voiceover explaining to us the audience what just happened like you fucking have some faith in your audience that they understand the visuals and the story that you're presenting to us don't punctuate every single scene with a narration explaining to us what just happened and what's going to happen next we're watching the movie we can figure this out for ourselves a little bit of narration to kind of would be nice, but like this constant bombarding was just dragging. Um, and because of stuff like that, it, it makes me almost think that Amsterdam itself would have worked almost. If I had read this as a novel, I would have enjoyed it. And I think that's the problem. He's writing this such verbose, like dense, long, meandering tale that. On, in written form would have been great. And it makes me understand why so many of these actors signed up for this. Because reading the script, you'd be like, this is a fucking masterpiece. This is fantastic. But the execution of it just didn't work. I guess I guess that's all I'll say on that one. Um, quickly, kind of say, staying in that same lane of films that kind of got really bad reviews. Um, I watched Bullet Train. 
uh, which was a film that I felt oddly, like, you know, I didn't end up going and, like, seeing it at the cinema as I watched it home on VOD. Um, but it was one, uh, I didn't go and see it at the cinema because it was getting such negative reviews and I just didn't find the time for it. It came out around the time of the film festival. Um, but I went into that one sort of with, you know, my backup, kind of expecting, oh, this is going to be a pretty shitty movie. Um, I had a great time. I mean, you know, looking at Letterboxd in front of me, I logged it as a two and a half star film, but that is great. Like, that is exactly what it is. It is a totally enjoyable, fun two and a half star. It's not trying to reinvent the wheel. It is, it's a bunch of fucking killers and hitmen sitting on the train using Thomas the, sitting on a bullet train using Thomas the tank engine as an allegory. It's it's dumb fun, um, which is why I found it so shocking that it got so raked over the coals by everyone. Um, it's like, what do you want from it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's exactly what it wants to be. And for that, I, I appreciate it. Um, I wonder if it is just that whole thing of it's Brad Pitt's first, you know, starring role since winning an Oscar. And that's kind of maybe why everyone's like, ooh, what's his follow-up going to be? It's like, no, he's just having fun. Let him be. He's fucking having fights in a bucket hat. Let him Let him go. <laughs> um, yeah. But I guess that'll sort of do my, my little wrap-up. Um, I mean, the only other one I saw at the cinemas, I got to go to a preview of uh, The Lost King, the new Stephen Frears, Steve Coogan movie. Um, I fucking loved Philomena when that film came out. Um, I thought that was a fantastic movie. And uh, shame on the Academy for uh, not... Uh, awarding it Best Adapted Screenplay, you robbed us of a Steve Coogan Oscar speech. <laughs> um, I just want, I just wish I could have seen that possibility. Um, but yeah, The Lost King uh, obviously went in with some high expectations. All I'm going to say is it's fine. It, it, it's fine. It is a totally enjoyable, kind of light, fluffy, feel-good movie. Um, it's fine. <laughs> that one so if, if you're up for something kind of light entertainment over the holiday season you could do a lot worse than the lost king but i'm sure there's also probably a lot better out there all right so that's enough of uh, the recent viewings let's dive back into criterion uh where i'm gonna address something that i missed out and forgot to do last week uh we have hit another 10 in the collection. So, with that, I forgot to, uh, last week on the Sword of the Beast portion of our episode, uh, doing the look back. Um, So I'm going to quickly do that now. Uh, So to refresh everyone's memory, the previous 10 films are An Angel at My Table, Harakiri, Bad Timing, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Bodu Saved from Drowning, Le Samurai, Naked, Masculine Feminine, Ugetsu, and Samurai Rebellion. Holy shit, there's some really good ones and some some okay ones in here. I mean, just looking down the list again, An Angel at My Table by Jane Campion. Fantastic, great film. Harakiri is a fucking masterpiece, like a five-star capital M masterpiece. Uh, Man Who Fell to Earth is a weird and wonderful, trippy kind of time capsule flick with Bowie. Le Samurai, another masterpiece. Naked, another masterpiece. Who gets to? I really enjoyed. So this is going to be really fucking tough. Um, I think for least favorite out of all these, I'm probably going to go with Bodu Saved from Drowning. Um, Just 
did not really connect with that one. Uh, the Renoir film from the thir- 1932, kind of, yeah, it's not my vibe. But in terms of best, I think I have to give it to Harakiri. Um, the Kobayashi film, it is so fucking fantastic. I have seen it about four or five times. Um, it, it's... It's just a classic. It is, like I said, a capital M masterpiece uh, where I would also put a, you know, that's, it wins with a massive asterisk next to it with uh, Le Samurai and Naked right behind it, like hot on its heels. Um, An honorable mention to, um, to an angel at my table as well. But with that, let's move into the third yeah, the third film in the Rebel Samurai 60s Swordplay Classics box set. We're going to do spine number 312, Samurai Spy. Years of warfare end in a Japan unified under the Tokugawa shogunate, and Samurai Spy Sasuke Serotobi, tired of conflict, longs for peace. When a high-ranking spy named Takawaki Koriyama defects from the shogun to a rival clan, however, the... The world of the swordsman is thrown into turmoil. After Sasuke is unwittingly drawn into the conflict, he tracks Takawaki while a mysterious white-hooded figure seems to hunt them both. By the tale's end, no one is who they seem to be, seem to be and the truth is far more personal than anyone suspected. Director Masahiro Shinoda's Samurai Spy, filled with clan intrigue, ninja spies, and multiple double-crosses, marks a bold stylistic departure from swordplay film convention. Alrighty. So... That was a bit of a fucking convoluted back of the box. <laughs> um, man, if I had the raw audio files of like the amount of times I stumbled over the comma placements and the names and everything, ugh, uh, we'd be about 15 minutes deeper into the episode. But that is kind of a good signifier for what, how I felt with watching this film. Um, again, it's, it's, I, I looked back through and, you know, obviously we're talking about um, a film by Masahiro Shinoda here. And the only other one that kind of comes to mind of his that I'd watched previously is Double Suicide. Um, it's been quite a few years since that one, and I, from what I remember, I was not the biggest fan. Um, similar to this one, actually. Um, so, why? I guess why? Why didn't I connect with this one? Especially hot off of the, like. Looking at the previous two, with Samurai Rebellion and then Sword of the Beast, like, Sword of the Beast, that's squarely on me, like, for not doing my research, looking into and actually understanding what type of film I was going into and uh, trying to kind of look at. Uh, Samurai Rebellion just fucking ruled. That was fine. Um, this one, I, I found a little... Not a little. I'm going to be real honest here. Really hard to kind of engage with and kind of keep connected to. Um, it's, I wanted to, at a certain point, I wish I had started from the beginning and kept track of how many lines of dialogue didn't, uh, have a proper noun included in them, whether it be the name of a person and the name of a clan or the name of a place that they're going to. It was a constant bombardment of kind of baffling plot, um, And by plot, I don't mean narrative. I mean exposition and plotting device. Like, 
And this is kind of in lieu of any kind of substantial character development. Again, I'm kind of, I really didn't enjoy this film. So if you did, I kind of apologize in advance that uh, I'm going to kind of rag on something that you didn't, that you actually really engaged with. Um, but yes, yeah, so like doing my kind of looking into this one and reading up on it, um, yeah, I read the essay by Elaine Silver, uh, Samurai Spy, The Thin Line uh, Between Truth and Lies. And it kind of opens up by saying, you know, the films um, in uh, Okamoto's the sort of uh, the sort of doom, Shinoda's samurai spy, and Gosha's sort of the beast. A new type of samurai was defined: pitiless, obsessive, perhaps more alienated than any other genre hero. And I get that with this film, and I, I totally agree. I think that is actually something that's truly interesting. And using those other two films as an example, uh, Sword of the Beast and Sword of Doom, it's something that I can actually that I actually engage with our protagonist with. Uh, whereas this one, I found it more alienating than uh, any film that I have actually watched in recent history. That includes Don't Worry, Darling, and Amsterdam <laughs> in those ranks. Um, it was. Just this the the lack of any emotionality behind the character. I get that that's what this new style of filmmaking is going for, but that combined with the constant bombardment of this is what's happening, this is where we're going, this is who we're talking to. It is, it is almost it. It became baffling at a certain point as to like trying to keep track of the names of the people what was like what their relationships to each other was i i mean i i'm under the assumption if i spoke japanese and was able to kind of watch this without the subtitles and stuff i might have been able to keep track of everything a little bit better but it was almost like needing to have a spreadsheet or a venn diagram to keep track of everyone's affiliations locations who they are and their names their kind of double crossings it really was a difficult thing to watch. And and it's kind of interesting as well, like continuing on with uh, what Silver says in the essay, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not just going to constantly read from the essay in this one. I, I am going to get into some more <laughs> analysis stuff. But just on that note of how I found it kind of truly kind of almost impenetrable uh, to get into the narrative of this film. I found it really interesting. Um, he kind of breaks it down a bit by saying, uh, in terms of narrative in post-war Chanbara, um, Chanbara being the Japanese word for swordplay films, um, the disparate versions of events featured in such films like Rashomon soon evolved into a multi-layered narratives of Harakiri, Goyakin, and Samurai Assassin, uh, often overlapping and or linked to various characters' points of views. Normal plot flow uh, was not required, and the complexities of unexpected actions and unexplained motive could be piled on rather than sifted through. Samurai Spy exemplifies this and then some. Uh, he then goes on to, he describes the plot as uh, labyrinthine, <laughs> and for this, Shinoda elaborates a maze of assumed identities and false trails, wandering through a countryside where he regularly encounters the residual violence of the recently ended civil war. Shinoda's personage moves with the guileless self-assured of a Dante passing from a dark forest into a darker and murderous inferno. I don't necessarily agree to that full extent. I mean, my th the fact that it almost seems like Shinoda is 
purposely built, uh, like being kind of obtuse with his narrative. Like he's trying to create this depths and depths of subterfuge that you as an audience then get kind of as caught up and wrapped into it as the characters. And while I understand that is a great and interesting motivation as almost a filmmaking or narrative exercise as a viewer, it is, it's, it's, it's really not a fun experience. Um, Trying to kind of weave your way through this hedge maze of a narrative um, especially if you're not familiar with Japanese kind of history around this period as well. The the fact that it is, he's bombarding you constantly with name, 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 place, setting. It, it just, it really just, it fatigued me, um, I guess, is a good way to put it. Um, but I, I really kind of want to push all of that to the side, the fact that I really had a tough time kind of engaging with with this film um, to kind of highlight some of the stuff that I did engage, like I did find interesting about it. And it was those little elements that kind of kept me hooked in, I guess, and kept me engaged. Um, Otherwise, like, yeah, this was one that I was very tempted to go at 1.5 speed, Uh, but that would have just made everything worse. Would have been so much tougher then. Um, But what I do want to point out is that, Right off the bat, how I kind of started to view this film, like, it's, I, I understand the rebel samurai elements that have kind of been placed in throughout there, um, you know, following on from last the last two films and last episode, but what I found interesting about this one, uh, coming in, what, what year was it again? 1965. So what, what I found really interesting was the incorporation of film noir elements into this, into this tale. Um, you know, combinations of both the lighting effects, uh, the way that its narrative kind of does unfold in that kind of labyrinthine manner, this constant man kind of moving from place to place, being told, go to speak to this person, go encounter that person, fall in love with, like, you know, sleep with this lady, get double-crossed by that person, and, you know, this organization. All of those convoluted elements in that narrative are like something that you would see in a classic noir, this kind of bombardment of facts and information that you then have to pass through as an audience, uh, pass through, um, P-A-R-S-E, not pass. P-A-S-S. <laughs> you have to pass to get into what is actually happening within the nuts and bolts of this story. Um, I found that really kind of interesting. You know, we've got as our protagonist, uh, Sasuke, he is that stereotypical tall, dark, and handsome wanderer, th- this kind of man who is like, he's less of a kind of a wandering samurai or a ronin, but like as it alludes to in that narrative, uh, sorry, the the description on the back of the criterion, it is more ninja than it is samurai, like, and I use that as something like, w- what I'm more familiar with of the cheesy and shitty 80s kind of canon ninja movies, like, you know, the cloaked, you know, wearing the cloaks over their heads and things and throwing ninja stars and little explosives and darts and leaping and jumping all over the place. Um, but because of it's going into that more kind of ninja element, there is a lot more kind of sneaking and investigating, which, again, tying into that classic detective noir elements. Um, again, beautiful black and white cinematography in this one. You, I, I cannot fault it on a, on a visual uh, point. It, it is really great to look at. In particular, like he, he, Shinoda knows where to put his lights. Um, you know, that dark, low-key kind of, mon- like really highlighting the monochromatic elements of the black and white film, really helping to intensify or kind of 
bring that noirness to the front, the harsh shadows, and it gives this really kind of the almost German expressionistic kind of ominous feel to what's kind of happening, um, even though I was kind of lost in terms of what was actually happening in terms of the narrative. Um, on top of that as well, you've got, you know, the odd little illusion, the, the voiceover narration kind of popping in from time to time. Uh, I, mean, I think the opening lines that we hear Sasuke, uh, Sasuke say is, uh, I'm pursued, I'm always pursued. Again, classic lines that you would hear a detective or a criminal in a classic noir say. Um, again, and, you know, on top of all of this, you've got the, the allusions to all the sex in the film, as well as, like, the, the copious amounts of pretty rad violence, I'm gonna say. <laughs> um, so it was like that, those elements I really found interesting, and it was, I was able to kind of hook onto those, and really, that, that kind of was my guiding light throughout the film, and whenever I found myself becoming baffled by what was happening in terms of like this overly dense and maze-like narrative I just had to sit back and sort of say to myself like it's it's a noir let it just happen kind of approach this almost like a mood piece as opposed to a straightforward narrative and that was kind of what was able to get me through the film and kind of sit back and actually enjoy a lot of uh, like some of the elements um, I was going to say a lot but that's that's pushing it some of the elements of this film um most notably would be like I said the cinematography is fucking fantastic in this one if you're looking for a film uh just to pop on and kind of not necessarily pay attention totally to the narrative but to be kind of washed away in the visuals you could do a lot worse than putting on this film it it looks really really great um and the other element i guess that kind of goes in with that is the action of the film um shinoda really kind of knows how to strikingly present his action like a lot of the time uh, especially early on uh sasuke and the other um, people he'd be engaged in fights with were often obscured behind things, whether it be kind of reeds or elements of a building and things, obviously kind of thematically laying into the fact of, you know, a lot of these people are spies and so they've got to be kind of hidden away, kind of obscured from the view of the general public. I yeah, Interesting little elements there. But when it gets into some of the outdoor action scenes towards the later later half of the film beautiful dolly shots um and especially there's a couple of action sequences where the camera is like almost a good 100 meters away looking down on the action from the top of a hillside and it's just gorgeous to look at um really really enjoyed some of that stuff but what i what never failed to put a smile on my face was the crash zooms, the sound effect stings, and the slow motion leaping and jumping in the air with the fucking six million dollar man soundtrack. The amazing. I I was not expecting to be watching like an episode of Monkey Magic. What with this happening, it was fucking rad. Um, I have not seen a samurai movie with those elements for quite some time and was not expecting this to be one of them. Uh, when, whenever those little flourishes happened, I, I just grin from ear to ear. I'm like, this is just fun. How can, how can you not help but enjoy when the camera crash zooms into someone's face and the music goes like, you just... You love it. You love to see it. Um, I, I was not also expecting the film to be the, as violent as it was. I mean, obviously, with the black and white cinematography, there's a lot of, you know, they're able to hide all of that. I mean, shit, Tarantino did that with Kill Bill, the whole cut the black and white, that's how you avoid the MPAA. Um, 
But this had a lot of fucking limbs being cut off and people being stabbed in the neck and blood pouring out. Uh, especially for 1965, it was very unexpected. But uh, not unwelcome, I'll say, especially, again, going back, if this is kind of incorporating all of those classic noir tropes, having that kind of shocking violence just kind of helps add to all of that. Um, what else? Um, I'll, I'll talk quickly on the performances as well. I think as well, this was something that I had a tough time kind of engaging with. Um, mainly as well, I mean, I get it. it it's, it, 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 like I said at the beginning, quoting the essay, it's that new kind of style of pitiless kind of, it, it's a different type of genre hero. And it's, but I think to, as much as I kind of found it interesting what Koji Takahashi was doing uh, as his, uh, Sasuke, he, it, it was a blank slate. And I'm not entirely sure if that was mainly due to the fact that I found the narrative to be impenetrable. And because of that, uh, there was little to no character involvement for me. Um, that could have been the case, but I'm, you know, who's to say, I guess. But solid enough, uh, worked really well as, like I said, that tall, dark, and handsome kind of stranger, keeping that kind of strong, silent type going throughout the film. It, it was fine. Uh, I loved the music. Again, leaning into that noirness of it, I, I thought the music really helped to kind of accentuate certain elements and that more kind of stylized, heightened aspects of the film. That I really, truly enjoyed and, um, yeah, had a great time with all of that. But I guess just kind of summing up on this one, uh, it I really didn't have the best of times watching this one, and, I mean, that is totally due to the maze-like narrative for this one. Um just the the over bombardment of plot 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 with any kind of lacking of narrative development or character development i found to be really kind of disheartening um especially when there were so many of these other elements like the stylized the noir um i i really did enjoy so it was a little bit disappointing to kind of walk away from this one just being like what the fuck but i mean it happens from time to time what can you say uh, we'll quickly go into the Criterion Edition itself. Um, so the Criterion Edition, uh, it is still in print in the uh, Rebel Samurai box set as a one-disc DVD that comes with exclusive new 16-minute video interview with director Masahiro Shinoda, gallery of key characters in the film, essay by Elaine Silver, which I'd mentioned earlier. Uh, all of this stuff is also available to stream on the Criterion channel. Um... Tagline. What have I got for a tagline on this one? Samurai spy. They're not spies like us. And I, I don't know. That's that's all I got off the top of my head. <laughs> Sue me. Uh, it's a fucking. I went for a John Landis fucking Chevy Chase riff. Why not? Let's 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 deal with it. <laughs> um, so uh, on that note, I'm gonna. Uh, duck out now and I'm going to go and watch the final film in the Rebel Samurai box set from 1968 called Kill Wish Me Luck
having just watched Kihachi Okamoto's 1968 film, Kill. In this pitch-black action comedy from Kihachi Okamoto, a pair of down-on-their-luck swordsmen arrive in a dusty, wind-blown town where they become involved in a local clan dispute. One, previously a farmer, longs to become a noble samurai. The other, a former samurai haunted by his past, prefers living anonymously with gangsters. But when both men discover the wrongdoings of the nefarious clan leader, they side with a band of rebels who are under siege at a remote mountain cabin. Based on the same source novel as Akira Kurosawa Sanjuro, Kill playfully tweaks samurai film convention, borrowing elements from established Chanbara classics and seasoning them with a little Italian western. Okie dokie. Uh, this is an interesting one. Um... I mean, okay, just in, I guess, putting it into the grandest scope of this entire box set, the Rebel Samurai 60s swordplay classics, uh, this is definitely a bit of an outlier amongst all the four in that it really tries to subvert and play with genre tropes, I guess. Um, this is not your typical Chanbara film. It is not a kind of action-driven samurai and swordplay film, even though there are those elements firmly within it. This, first and foremost, is kind of a comedy. Um, I mean, right there in the opening of the Criterion box, they said a pitch-black action comedy. I would not even classify it as pitch-black. I would just flat-out say this is a comedy film, Um, which right off the bat was a very kind of disparate kind of tone, especially coming off of things like uh, Samurai Spy, uh, Samurai Rebellion and things. These kind of more serious and dour tones, I guess, that are kind of running through this box set. To have something that opens with a windblown dust bowl town with two kind of vagrant homeless bums who haven't eaten in days trying to chase down a raggedy chicken uh, while Western music plays. It is a real weird, wild tonal shift uh, in the grander scheme of the whole box set. I mean, for God's sake, he arrives in the town and he's like, I'm just hungry. And they're like, well, food's down that way. Opens the door and they're just presented with the swinging legs of the cook who's hung herself. Like, it's weird and dark, but it is it is first and foremost going for that kind of playful comedic tone, which I was not expecting. Um, and was kind of pleasantly surprised by, and was something that I kind of wish the film had leaned a little bit deeper into um, as its runtime went on, as opposed to kind of leaning back into that kind of more narrative-driven Chanbara classic elements that we kind of, uh, that I'm kind of expecting, I guess, from these type of films. Did it work for me totally? Uh, Not 100%, no. Um, while I found the film like very entertaining in parts, it was one where I think it's, it's, it's shifting in tones. And again, while it's not as kind of brutal as Samurai Spy, it's, narrative and its story did end up kind of shifting into that convoluted nature um where is it i was yeah i was reading over the criterion the essay that comes in the uh criterion edition uh, by howard hampton uh, kill parted my dust and he kind of perfectly sums it up right here at the beginning um I'll just read this quickly. Uh, With its cross-hatching plot, stitching zigzagging modulations and dust-blown stock figures, Tatsuya Nakadai as a a hobo swordsman, 
plus a, pl- a peasant bumpkin turned into a would-be samurai, a dispossessed retainer, one kidnapped chamberlain, and one kidnapped per chamberlain, a mercenary who needs 30 Rio to buy his wife's freedom from a brothel, and seven squabbling samurai in search of a raison d'etre. So there's all of that. There's all of those like six or seven different kind of narrative subplots that are all kind of housed and contained within this one relatively simple story at its core. And I think because of that jumbled and jumping around zigzagging nature, it it kind of made made me at least as an audience member lose interest, I guess. Not having that clear enough through line, I guess. I wasn't able to, or I didn't engage with it as much as I kind of wished I had, if that makes sense. It, it's one where I almost wish that it had just, you know, it, it's fine to have all of those elements in there, obviously, but kind of maintaining and having Tatsuya Nakadai, uh, who is quickly becoming one of my fucking favorite actors at the moment, which I'll get into a little bit later. Um, if we just had either, you know, if you kept it with Hanjuro or um, Genta, the, our two kind of leads that were introduced to at the beginning, kind of squarely focused on them I th- and having them kind of guide us through all of this narrative. The, like, the two ca- main characters do disappear for quite large chunks of this film at a time while they are still acting as the driving forces for what's ending up happening in the narrative i kind of just wish we uh, okamoto had kind of focused more solely on them to help kind of guide us through this again zigzagging narrative and again i want to say it is nowhere near as convoluted or kind of uh, maze-like as Samurai Spy, but it does kind of get bogged down, I think, is is a good way to put it. Bogged down in uh, kind of an overabundance of characters and narratives that it's trying to service at the same time as trying to kind of satirize and play off of this stereotypical Chanbara film. I suppose I should get into what I'm talking about really when I say that this film is kind of satirizing or, I mean, satirizing is probably not the right word to use, but playing with those uh, conventions of the Chanbar or like the samurai films. So I mentioned when I was reading the synopsis on the back of the box that this is based off the same source novel as Akira Kurosawa's Sanjuro. Um, so obviously it's interesting to note that, uh, that Yojimbo, which comes out in the fifties, ends up being remade by Sergio Leone with Clint Eastwood in 1964 as a fistful of dollars. Uh, and then again in 1965, you have, uh, for a few dollars more and rounding out that trilogy in 1966 with the good, the bad and the ugly. So by the time that Kill comes out in 1968, we've actually already gone through that entire cycle of the samurai films of the 50s, um, you know, mainly Yojimbo and this, you know, the Kurosawa ones there, going through that complete Western remake of having the spaghetti Westerns, Sergio Leone, Eastwood, all of those guys being inspired by those, reinvent, taking those stories, reinventing them in the westernized, uh, literally Western genre, and completed that entire cycle. And now we're back round to a samurai film which is then 
taking a original source novel that was the inspiration for these spaghetti westerns and then kind of tying in all of those cinematic tropes into back into the genre that inspired those films in the first place. It's kind of this weird Ouroboros, I guess, like the snake eating its own tail of kind of inspired filmmaking. And it leads to some really kind of cool and interesting ideas in this. Like like the opening scene of Tatsuya Nakadai arriving in the town Genta, it is like straight out of Man With No Name. Like he he is Clint Eastwood. He is wandering into this town, walking. It's, it's that beautiful Western photography with that kind of twangy surf guitar that's like really similar, like less Ennio Morricone and more kind of like the ventures, that surfy music as well. Um, it's it's really inspired, actually, and makes, right off the bat, you kind of engage as an audience member. But as the film kind of goes along in its running time, it really did, to me, seem to kind of shift away from those um, more kind of spaghetti western uh, infused kind of uh, shots and stylistic choices into something a little bit more different, which when you kind of look... Comparing it to kind of the the rest of the films and Okamoto's... Uh, filmography and again i should just probably say i'm not all that familiar with uh, okamoto's work as a whole but for this sake i'm kind of focusing on the one uh kind of very key film in his career and it's one that i kind of have watched recently a uh, sort of doom which um when you compare the, these two films as kind of more upbeat kind of wacky cynical comedic western infused samurai film to Sword of Doom, which is a very dour, dark, bloody, vengeful, amazing film, but it is kind of that more... It, it, it's, these, it's the two sides of the coin, I guess, when you're looking at samurai films, I guess. This, this bloody, bloody brutalism and this kind of satirical, like, isn't this kind of weird that this is the thing? Um... And I think what makes it kind of this one stand out, uh, like apart from obviously the comedic and Western tones, is it does appear to me like it is Okamoto kind of taking all of those tropes that he's, that he's very deftly explored previously in Sort of Doom and kind of trying to view them from the other kind of side. It, it, instead of being a kind of somber glorification of all this violence and this enacting, he wants to kind of subvert that heroic archetype of the samurai. And it's interesting that he's getting Tatsuya Nakadai as well to kind of be his hero in both of those films. So it's, it's both the actor and the filmmaker working again together, but as completely disparate examples of a samurai. Instead, you know, as I said, the somber kind of bloody brutalism. And in this one, a kind of man who has been there, seen it all, and is like, no, I choose the life of you know, the Wanderer, like, uh, he has so many wonderful, great quotes in this film. Like, uh, and a great one is kill or be killed either way. Just, it just leaves an unpleasant aftertaste. Um, you know, he's a man who's just like, I don't need, I, I, and he constantly says this all to Hanjiro as well. Like the, you don't want to be a samurai. I've been there. I've seen this all. It's not going to fucking work out well for you. It is not this glamorous lifestyle that everyone puts it up to be. And again, like it's it's interesting that it's Okamoto kind of two years post sort of doom kind of exploring. Hey, I explored like this glorification of that. He, let's actually have a protagonist who is, yeah, that's the, like you've seen that in and we've presented that to you. 
and you still want to kind of engage with it and you think this is a cool lifestyle, all right, that's on you kind of thing. But the one thing that I kind of wish the film had done a little bit more is that comedic elements. I think that would have really not hammered home that point more solidly, but I think it would have made it a little bit more palatable, if that makes sense. Like, it, it's when it shifts away from the Western elements as well, there are still a lot of really fun comedic moments in there. Lots of kind of, like, I mean, the prime example when Hanjiro says the only thing he cares about is a woman who smells of the earth, you know, obviously having been a farmer, that's the kind of, you know, resemblance of where he comes from, the woman that he's used to and what he finds attractive is not these kind of doled up geishas, but a woman who is actually of the earth, who works, who knows how to kind of live. And when he finds the woman at the brothel, he wipes off all the makeup and like, it's like, yes, now you are perfect. Like you actually smell like a woman. You don't, you're not perfumed up. Like these wonderful little comedic bits pop up throughout the film and it's great but it does kind of lean away from similar to the western elements it does lean away from the comedic for kind of periodic stretches of the film to kind of lean into that more narrative heavy and that kind of more satirical structure where I guess I mean satirical is probably not the right word to use but that kind of analysis or self-examination on the Chanbara films, I guess, that Okamoto is, uh, is kind of engaging with here. Um, I just really wish it had leaned into that comedic a little bit more and almost kind of kept it up cons- consistently throughout the runtime. I, I don't know if I'm saying that just because I love comedy, but <laughs> whatever. Um, what else... I was saying at the beginning of this uh, portion of the episode that this one seemed like a bit of an outlier um, from the rest of the box set. But I suppose what I've been kind of saying about this whole Okamoto kind of self-examining the Chanbara genre and kind of what he'd been doing in previous films like Sword of Doom and kind of trying to subvert that and kind of shift the impressions of the samurai life is kind of how this ties into the rebel samurai box set as a whole. And I think compared to what we'd seen previously um, with the past three films, I think it's a really interesting examination. Like we're not just, we're not just revisiting the same examinations or the kind of subversion or shifting of ideas that we've seen in um, Samurai Rebellion and Samurai Spinal, the kind of pointing out the hypocrisy of the shogunate and the samurai lifestyle. While that stuff is still in Kill, it's kind of not really what he's using as the main focus to kind of present this kind of shift against the Chanbar or the samurai film tropes, I guess. Um, it's, it's interesting. I like it. I like it. Um, didn't love it, but liked it. <laughs> um, but let's talk about Tatsuya Nakadai for a minute. Um, holy shit, this dude. Um, I mean, there's a lot of films that, of his that I've seen. Like, you know, obviously he was in, you know, dating way back in, I believe he's in High and Low, some of the earlier films that we covered on the podcast years and years and years ago. But within the last sort of 12 months, I'd say, we've been hit with Harakiri, Sword of Doom, uh, Samurai Rebellion. And in each one of these films, and like Kill is a perfect example of this, if you were to compare, say, like, um, we'll use the three of Harakiri, Samurai Rebellion, 
um, and now kill. He is presenting a totally different character and embodiment uh, in every single one of these films. He's a like astonishing actor, I think. Um, and I believe like the 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 Hampton essay that comes with the Criterion edition like breaks it down really well, kind of looking at how Tatsuya Nakadai was never really able to break through in Western films. Like, he was never able to really get out from under the shadow of someone like Toshiro Mifune, who was just such a powerful presence in any of the films that he was in. Whereas Nakadai is a little bit more like a character actor. Um, He's kind of more malleable i guess and less and because of that like embodying of the characters um he didn't have a kind of very clear and distinct screen persona like mifuni did where you're like you know exactly what type of person mifuni is going to be and he modulates that depending obviously on the role or what the film is needing of him whereas nakadai seems to really just disappear into whatever the characters he he is portraying i think because of that he didn't obviously then have that kind of pop that you know you get from these kind of superstars that break through from you know their native country across into you know western cinema i guess uh, but I thought he was fucking fantastic in this film, uh, hysterically funny, um, he kind of shifts from being, like, clearly the smartest man into the room to playing dumb in front of everybody really fantastically, and that's obviously where a lot of the comedy kind of stems from as well, it's this, he's clearly the smartest man in the room playing dumb for the sake of escalating the plot and kind of his own advantages within that, really fun stuff, um, what else should, did I like about this film? I cannot go any further without talking about the music. Holy shit, the music fucking ruled in this film. Uh, it was the first note that I wrote down. Uh, I think as I mentioned earlier, it's that more kind of twangy surf guitar stuff from the 50s and 60s. Um, and again, like tying into that whole like westernized films being inspired by the samurai films and now then kind of the Ouroboros background inspiring again it works so fucking well especially for a film like this that is leaning into that black comedy elements um the music to me is the absolute highlight of this film um again there is some really fun stylized violence uh and cinematography gorgeous black and white cinematography again kind of being inspired by some of the earlier leone films like fistful of dollars it's not getting into that kind of grandeur of uh you know once upon a time in the west or good the bad and the ugly the bit more kind of contained versions of that maybe even even some of the kind of corbucci films as well um but it as a whole, it is, I think, didn't, I I didn't love the film as much as I kind of hoped I would, especially from the beginning where I'm like, oh shit, it's funny, this music rules, Nakadai, fantastic, has all of these great elements, but it's kind of not equal to the sum of its parts for me. Um, and I think it is because of that, trying to service multiple kind of character arcs and convoluted nature of the story not kind of co- becoming cohesive together. Um, but all of that being said, I would probably more happily revisit this film than I would say Samurai Spy or um, or Sword of the Beast. I mean, it's, I'd probably put this as number two in the box set out of all of the three, but probably only just. Um, 
none of these kind of lived up to the absolute majesty that was Samurai Rebellion, unfortunately. But again, if you're a fan of Tatsuya Nakadai, you want to see a different type of Chanbara film, I would highly recommend uh, giving Kill a look, though. Uh, so we'll quickly talk about the Criterion edition itself. Uh, it's still in print in the Rebel Samurai 60s Swordplay box set. It comes with the original theatrical trailer and teaser essay that I've talked about by Howard Hampton, and that is it. Uh, it's also available all of, with all of that stuff up on the Criterion channel to stream. Now, in terms of a tagline for this one, uh, so this is what I got. This is what I got. Kill. The man with no name, but it's no spelt N-O-H, like the Japanese theater style. That's all I got for this one. That, I guess, will wrap us up after a a long time with the uh, Rebel Samurai box set. Four films, uh, we are now going to put them to the side and move on. Um, I think I mentioned in the last episode, uh, so Lee is going to be off for quite a significant time more. Hopefully I'll have a little bit more news and uh, maybe even uh, a little bit of uh, recording of her herself explaining all of that uh, for you guys in the next episode. But um, because of that, there's a bunch of films coming up that uh, I really wanted to watch with her. So I think we're going to kind of jump leapfrog over a couple of films coming up and then circle back around to them when she's willing and able. Um, So as such, our next episode should be Pickpocket by Robert Bresson. But uh, given our strong reactions to Oh Hazard Balthazar, I really am intrigued uh, to what Lee thinks about this one. So we're going to kind of leapfrog over Pickpocket and jump straight to Shoot the Piano Player from Francois Truffaut, uh, spy number 315. Um, so I will be back in a fortnight's time discussing that film, but in the meantime, we're still chugging away over on the Patreon, uh, we're getting ready to record a very fun commentary episode that, uh, we'll be dropping in the next week that I cannot wait, uh, to A, record, B, edit, and, uh, C, listen to again, so if you have any interest in any of that, um, I'll say it's kind of discussing, uh, Zemeckis, where we're gonna dive into Bobby Z a little bit. But if you have any interest in that, it's uh, patreon.com slash the Criterion Quest. Uh, we love and appreciate everyone that is supporting the show over there. And if you have any interest, go check it out. Uh, some fun stuff there. All this stuff's in the episode description as usual with the letterboxed and the Instagram and the yada, yada, yadas. Uh, you can also send us an email at the Criterion Quest at gmail.com. But otherwise, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm done with talking about these Rebel Samurai films. And I will be back in a fortnight's time with back with some more Truffaut and shoot the piano player. Uh, For this week's episode, I'm Chris. We'll see you next time.